Thanks for the wonderful introduction, Bennett. Um, he was a star from day one. You should know that Bennett showed up at this conference in 2011, and he's saying, hey, can I use my iPad to <laughs> present the, my presentation? And we're all like, we're going to do what? Um, can we even do that? Um, and he blew us away then and has continued to do so. Um, and uh, so it's, it's great to be here. It a, it's a great honor. It's a great honor to be a part of the Markowitz Lecture. Um, you know, one of the things that Bennett didn't say is kind of how I ended up in this ro role. And um, you heard that I went to Notre Dame, but he left out. I went to, I was, I'm originally I'm an Okie. Um, and you see this Oklahoma, Notre Dame, Nebraska. Look, we are sports fans in my family, right? So um, now why does a kid who grew up in Oklahoma end up in Nebraska is what you should be asking yourself because that doesn't happen. Um, you're not really allowed to do that unless you have a really good reason. Um, and my good reason was, you know, the, you have those really, probably the most important moment in my life is I met my wife um, in Oklahoma, who actually uh, was doing antibiotic stewardship in 1998 as a pharmacist. So I am hugely biased to pharmacists. You have some of the greatest pharmacists here, Jen Dorado and her team. Um, but she's the one that says, okay, I'll go to Nebraska if I can go wherever I want for fellowship. Um, and so that's how I ended up in Nebraska and then to... Uh, Philadelphia was the country bumping going to Philadelphia and then back to the Midwest. But um, again, this is my passion. Um, I love talking about this topic. Um, I think this is what we're all supposed to be doing and things have changed. I'll try to kind of impart that upon you over the next uh, 45, 50 minutes. Um, I do have one disclosure. We do work with Grant, with, both, uh, with Merck, with about some grants with stewardship as well as some industry funded clinical trials. Um, here's what I'll talk about today. I won't belabor this, but we'll go through these different aspects of my talk. Um, but let's start with a story, and I think um, it fits well with knowing that this is the Markowitz lecture and hearing some of his work around um, group-based strep. So what's good about moving to new places is you get to meet new colleagues who, one of my new colleagues in St. Louis brought me this paper. And this is, as you can see, was published in 1941-42. It was authored by two people, one of which was a fourth-year Harvard medical student. Um, and this story starts out... Um, in 1921, this 13-year-old developed choreiform movements. So if you have choreiform movements in 1921, or really even in 2018, what do you have likely? You have rheumatic fever, right? So this, this individual had rheumatic fever. And he ta they talk about in this paper about how he had tonsillitis. Um, and they talked about the description of that, you know, the heart sounds. And he actually was diagnosed with aortic insufficiency. This wasn't based on an echocardiogram, right? This was based upon, you know, the, the description of what the, the regurgitation murmur that they heard, the diastolic murmur. And he would tell you that, at least the story would tell you that he knew he was alive because he always felt his heartbeat, right? Because he had such aortic insufficiency that if he didn't feel his heartbeat, he was like, I would have been dead, right? Because that's what his life was like from then on. So then, so this is his 13-year-old. He had this rheumatic fever episode. He had this aortic insufficiency, but he went on to do well, and he went to medical school, um, and he was at Harvard. And, and about 10 years later, um, he says at a quarter to 12 at night while studying for final exams, um, he looked down, he took off his coat, looked down the ventral of his wrist, and saw petechiae. And he turned to his sister-in-law. I mean, this is actually in the paper, written just like this. Turned to his sister-in-law and said, I shall be dead in six months. Anybody have an idea what he was worried about? Endocarditis. 
So he tried to go to different clinicians to say, hey, look, I think I have endocarditis. He said, no, this is probably just your rheumatic fever. This is just a rheumatic episode. I finally convinced somebody to get a blood culture. And as you guys just suggested, his blood cultures were positive for Streptococcus viridans. And this was his quote. He said, I could always find a loophole in the evidence here and there. But now I was confronted with a dictum ultimatum from which there was no escape. He developed aphasia, he developed pulmonary edema, and he died three months later. So this was 1931. This is before antibiotics, right? We don't even think about this, right? This isn't even in our, we don't even, can't even comprehend this in this day and age, right? I can remember not six months ago, I was walking around, I was on the clinical ID service. Um, we were consulted for a subacute bacterial endocarditis patient that had streptococcus viridans and it was in a baby that had a single ventricle right did any of us worry about this child succumbing to that illness we were saving a child with one ventricle we were doing all these different surgical procedures antibiotics has changed medicine it's revolutionized what we can do we do bone marrow transplants we have childbirth for c-sections that is safe my own child had um, hardware placed in his knee for osteochondritis desiccans, right? All of this had, antibiotics had an implication or an importance in whether the treatment or prevention of infection. So I want to first off say that these have changed the way we practice medicine. And so we need to think about that as we go forward. So where did it all start? Well, the first antibiotic really utilized was probably the sulfa drugs. Dr. Garrett Domack did some research on, on red dyes, looking at the medicinal properties, and they used this medicinal red dye on um, a 10-month-old with Staph aureus bloodstream infection. So you can imagine if a 10-month-old has Staph aureus in their blood, what happens if you don't treat them, right? They, they likely will die. Um, and as irony would have it, Dr. Domack's own six-year-old daughter had an invasive cellulitis of the arm. And what happens if you have a horrible invasive cellulitis and you don't have antibiotics? What do you do? Debridement, likely amputation if they're spreading too fast. But in this case, received this drug, this sulfa-containing drug, and, and kept her arm. So this was the impact, right? So this is a quote from a book by Lewis Thomas, and he said, For most of the infectious diseases on the wards of Boston City Hospital in 1937, there was nothing that could be done beyond bed rest, and good nursing care. Then came the explosive news of sulfonilamide and the start of the real revolution in medicine. So who are, the, who's these, who are these gentlemen? So who, can you guys name who's on the left? So Alexander Fleming, right? That beautiful petri dish I showed in the title slide with that lawn of old Staph aureus bacteria, then the clearing next to the penicillium mold. The gentleman on the right, is Howard Florey. These two gentlemen won the Nobel Prize in the late 1940s with another gentleman named Ernst Chain. Um, Howard Florey's um, con contribution is really depicted in this book, The Mold in Dr. Florey's Coat. I'm a real nerd about this topic. I mean, this is probably one of the best books I've ever read. Um, the, the title refers to the era, right? So this was in the late, this is the 1930s, 1940s. Dr. Florey was from England at Oxford and the, the Germans were bombing England at the time. And so the thinking was that I take the penicillium mold and I put it in my coat 
and then I would escape with it. Now, the key about the story is Dr. Flory actually came to the U.S. We had a number of pharmaceutical companies that helped develop penicillin and actually brought up. The, the thing that Flory contributed is what Fleming never thought that this would be purified well enough to be used in humans. Flory says, no, I think we can do it. So that's where he took the science. The first use is thought to be really in this police officer in England, Albert Al Officer Albert Alexander. We had a horrible Staph aureus infection of his face and his eye. He lost his left eye, developed a horrible pneumonia, was essentially on his deathbed. They had this penicillin. They said, we have some of this medication. No idea what dose to use. No idea how often to give it. So they were just giving piddly amounts, really. Um, so they gave the penicillin. He got better. They had what they called the pee patrol, which they went back to his urine to kind of purify more to give back to him. He got better, but unfortunately they didn't have enough. And then he recrudesced and died of his pneumonia. But this was that time that says, oh man, this is a big deal, right? We, we just now need to have more product. We need more of the penicillin. And then we know what happens next. Now, Fleming, despite not seeing that the potential utility did foreshadow what we are dealing with now. And he said, the greatest possibility of evil and self-medication is the use of two small doses so that instead of clearing up infection, the microbes are educated to resist penicillin. And a host of penicillin fast organisms is bred out, which can be passed to other individuals and from them to others until they reach someone who gets a septicemia or pneumonia, which penicillin cannot save. And I, st I stop on penicillin, and now we can replace penicillin with ceftriaxone cannot save, right? I can even say that meropenem cannot save. Um, not four or five years ago, I was rounding in the intensive, neonatal intensive care unit where we had an ex-24-week premature infant who was now four weeks of life, who was doing well, right? We can save 24-weekers and they can go on to thrive. And this 24-weeker developed a bloodstream infection with Pseudomonas. Um, and we treated that initially with cefepime and because it, it was susceptible, developed another pseudomonal bloodstream infection. Now it was resistant to cefepime, so we gave them meropenem, developed the third pseudomonas, and now it was resistant to meropenem, so they were on colistin and they died. Right? That's the reality, and I bet you everyone in this room can kind of give me a story about the same situation, whether, and it, had, it involves a resistant bacterial infection, whether it's MRSA or one of the resistant gram-negatives. So let's step back and let's talk about what we're against. Because what we like to do is talk in metaphors of war when we're talking about this antimicrobial resistant crisis. And I want you to kind of maybe think that that's not the right metaphor, right? So first off, there's five times 10 to the 31 microbes on earth, right? So I don't even know what number that is. Like is it a Google or a Gillian? I don't know what that is. It's a lot, right? There's only 7 billion of us. There's five to 10 times more microbes living on and in a human, then human cells in the body comprise 60% of biomass of, of the planet. If you take away the cellulose, it's probably about 90%. They've been living on Earth for three and a half billion years to live and adapt. They replicate every 20 to 30 minutes. Like they're changing all the time. So this notion that we're up against a war is probably not the right notion. It's like, how can we work with them? And so... Brad Spellberg, who I consider one of the best ID minds when it comes to antibiotic use, antimicrobial stewardship, stated this at our fifth annual conference and said, microbes have been creating and defeating antibiotics for 20 million times longer than humans have even known antibiotics existed. They are already widespread in nature, 
resistance mechanisms to antibacterial agents, which we have not yet invented, right? That's what they do. They're surviving, right? And all we're doing by giving them more and more is just helping that process along even faster. So let's move on to what we're dealing with now. And I want to start with this figure. So there's two points to this figure. And let me explain. So on the top, we have the antibiotic deployment. On the bottom, we have antibiotic resistance observed. And you can see that whenever we get an antibiotic deployed, we develop resistance, right? So when anyone comes out and says, oh, this, this drug's not going to have antibiotic resistance, we should all just step back and say, well, that's probably not true, right? Nothing in the history has shown us that. And we know that with, the with our bacterial and other pathogens, there's going to be resistance that developed. So that's one. The second point is this. You have this huge gap of deployment of new antimicrobials, right? Why is that? Why don't we have antibiotics? Well, we live in a capitalistic society, probably more now than ever, right? We hear about it all the time. Um, there is not money in developing antibiotic, right? Why is that? Well, one is we're giving it for a finite amount of time, right? We're not giving it for ever. It's not a blood pressure medicine. It's not a diabetic medication. Two, you have people like me running around telling you you shouldn't use it as often, right? If, if we all had a great idea, let's say that Bennett says, I got it. I have the best drug, and it's going to be the best antibiotic. It's going to treat all of our resistant gram-negatives, and heck, it's going to be even great for ear infections. So we're like, hey, it's Bennett. Of course we're going to invest in this thing, right? This sounds like a great idea. Um, so... We're saying, all right, so we're going to all put our money in. Well, we, our first question is, well, what are we going to make in the end? Well, experts have suggested that after you go through the development, the clinical trials, brought it through the FDA, and now we're selling the drug and we're getting our, you know, taking in our revenues, we will make our present value money today is a negative, yeah, right, negative $50 million. Who's going to do that, right? Why would we do that? Why would there be investments in that? So now the story is getting better. We are seeing more different pushes and pulls, levers, they would say, to try to help antimicrobial development. But I'm going to tell you, we have to be thinking about developing new drugs. That's going to be part of antimicrobial stewardship going forward is helping the development and then making sure that we're using them correctly. Because we will run out of some of these in the future likely. So what is it? Now, what's our use, right? So let's step back and say, well, maybe we're using it great. Now, most of us in the audience would say, well, we know that's not the case because we have the stewardship programs being mandated. So you know that. But where is that? Um, so if we look at freestanding children's hospitals across the U.S., we know that 60% of children will at least receive one antibiotic during the course of their admission. If we look at comparing different hospitals, the variability in receiving that antibiotic or how much you receive is gigantic. You'll have up to you'll have 38 to 72% receive one, so it's all over the map. And even when you control for severity of illness, so the children's hospitals of Philadelphia can't say, well, my patients are way sicker than those in Omaha, Nebraska, um, that still is huge variability. Right? So there's definitely unique cultures among all of our hospitals. If we look at a point prevalent survey, so if I went around you know, Connecticut Children's Hospital today or looked at other children's hospitals on a given day, and we did this among 30 children's hospitals across the country, we found 
that about 37, 36 and a half, up to 39% of our patients on a given day will be receiving an antimicrobial. So again, it's a common medication. You guys know that. If we look at what are the most common antimicrobials in our freestanding children's hospitals, it's trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole or Bactrim, right? It's kind of an interesting thought. Well, why is that? And we were surprised by that, and I'll show you the indication in a second. But not surprisingly, our broad-spectrum drugs like vancomycin, ceftriaxone, piperacillin, tazobactam, obviously zosin, otherwise known as zosin, are also very common. If we then look at why, what are these indications? We use a lot of prophylactic medications. Now, that, that, we know that matters in many cases. Like that's an important use. So if we think of our oncology patients and the use of Bactrim for the prevention of PJP or PCP, I mean, that's important. But there's probably a lot of other prophylaxis that probably isn't necessary. I'd like to suggest that if we added surgical prophylaxis plus medical prophylaxis, we're over 30%. And the new data on surgical prophylaxis is saying that we only need one dose of surgical prophylaxis antibiotics for clean and clean contaminated cases. I can tell you in my hospital, it's from 24 hours on until you get rid of a drain, right? So these are the areas where we have a lot of work to do. Now, what about in the outpatient setting? If we look at just use in the outpatient setting, as you all know, that's a common area. Um, in a paper by Adam Hirsch from Utah, they estimated 49 million antibiotic prescriptions annually, about a fifth of all visits, and not surprisingly, about 70% were for respiratory conditions, things like acute or, or like um, upper respiratory tract infections, group A strep pharyngitis, sinusitis, otitis media. And we all know if I say those conditions, what's the recommended antibiotic for those? Moxicillin, right? But we learned that in this study that 50% were receiving a broad spectrum agent. So there's no way that allergy accounts for that, right? And most of those, the most common broad spectrum that, we, that was described in this study was azithromycin. Now, so that gives you quantity of use. But maybe we need to use this, right? Now, obviously, I'm suggesting we don't, but what's the data, right? How often are we inappropriate in our use? If you look at some adult studies, they suggest it's between 30 and 50%. Well, in that point prevalent survey study, what we tried to ascertain was really, what is our inappropriate rate? Where is it? Is it 30%? So in this figure, you'll see in red was all the other children's hospitals. There's about 30 in the study. And in blue was St. Louis Children's Hospital. And again, when we were reviewing each drug on that day of antibiotic use, we then says, okay, is that appropriate or inappropriate based upon the antibiotic steward, okay? So this was Bennett deciding, it was me deciding. So for some of the ICU folks in the audience, says, well, I might not have considered that inappropriate. I'll give you that. What we try to do is give some that were no-brainers. So if, you're, if you have methicillin-susceptible st methicillin staph aureus and you're receiving vancomycin, we would say, okay, that's inappropriate because it's a bug drug mismatch. Right? If you're receiving surgical prophylaxis for greater than 24 hours, we're like, that's inappropriate. And then we let people decide other. Regardless, what we found in this study was about 15% really stayed true if we added everything up. If you look at our own um, experience, we had 28% the first time we did it. We actually implemented our formal stewardship program between quarter three and quarter four, and then have seen it kind of come down to be around what the average is around among the hospitals. So again, this at least says, okay, here's 
what we think is, a, a, I think, a fair estimate of inappropriate use in our freestanding children's hospitals. And I say freestanding children's hospitals specifically because we haven't gone into the community hospitals and, and try to do this sort of analysis. What about the outpatient? So this is a study by Matt Croman, also a good friend of all of ours that we refer to as Boots. Um, you can ask him when you meet him what, how, why he came up with that name, but Boots came up with this study. It's a really important study um, where he basically said, what is our use of antibiotics in the outpatient setting? Let's look at the literature about what our use should be, and then what's our excess amount of antibiotic use in that outpatient setting? And again, these are those up, acute respiratory tract infections. So they took a national data sample and found that we have about 22 million antibiotic prescriptions. Now, we can just start right here and say, okay, there are 5 million inappropriate antibiotics already on this chart without me even going to the next part because we're not supposed to treat bronchitis and upper respiratory tract infections with antibiotics. And there's already 5 million there, right? So if we then look at literature to say, okay, for those that have a bacterial condition like acute otitis media, about 65% probably are bacterial, and this is based off of ear tap studies. So these are older studies. Now, many of us, right, we look at the AAP guidelines and other things. You know, if you have a child less than one that comes into the hospital with RSV and you see an otitis media, you're kind of stuck. You kind of feel like you might have to treat that with an antibiotic. I would contend we probably should be able to watch those children. But that's a whole other future, I think, when it comes to stewardship. If you look at other things like pharyngitis, we know there's a lot of pharyngitis that are caused by viruses. In the end, the excess antimicrobial use is about 11.5 million. And, and this study actually um, supported a, f a study from previously in 1998 done by Chris Nyquist, who's a pediatri pediatric ID person in Colorado, who found a similar number. So does that matter, right? So, well, maybe we're using antibiotics and we're not seeing resistance. Well, we all know that's not true. Um, this is a figure that's now even older. It's almost three years old, um, about carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae. So these are our E. coli, our Klebsiella's that are resistant to meropenem, imipenem. And you can see that every state in the country, except for Idaho and Maine, though I would contend they were seeing it too at that time, had CRE. <laughs> Now, you, one might say, well, you know, Jason, this is all in probably adults. We're not seeing it in kids. Well, you guys are probably correct me. It says, no, we've seen CREs. Um, and I can tell you, I've seen CREs. Um, if we look at just resistance to third-generation cephalosporins, like ceftriaxone, a study by Latanya Logan has shown that it has increased dramatically in both the ICU, also in the inpatient. And what scares me the most is when we see these gram-negatives resistant to ceftriaxone or cefixime or one of these oral third-generation cephalosporins in the outpatient, right? So what do you do then? And it reminds me of a story that wasn't only a month ago where we had a febrile infant that was 18 days of age, was admitted to the hospital uh, with a fever, right? We see that all the time. That's bread and butter pediatrics. That's what we do in our hospitals, right? So did the workup, the usual septic workup, not surprisingly, right, the urine grows in one of the most common, right, 10% of our serious bacterial infections. Then the bloodstream was also positive. It was for E. coli. And, of course, the ID guys, we were all starting to talk about, hey, when are we going to switch to oral, right? Then the, that big academic debate started happening. Who's going to go to oral sooner? Who's going to, you know, keep on IV, right? Everyone's in this room like, oh, I've been in that debate. Um, and what happened? Well, it was res this E. coli was resistant 
to all oral agents. It was an ESPL, right? We couldn't. We, we, that oral argument actually went away because now this child had to receive 10 days of IV. It changes everything, right? I mean, now we have a child that's in the hospital that I think you could have been able to send home on orals. Now, some might not agree with that, but again, that's scary to me, right? We start seeing those, things will change dramatically. So lastly, in this first part, does it matter, right? So what if we have resistant organisms? Does it really matter to our patients? In the end, right, is that clinically impactful? These adult studies, and I don't really have to describe this slide to you very much, but you can see that mortalities on this y-axis, if you got inadequate therapy in whether it's bloodstream infections or ventilator associated pneumonias, you were more likely to die than if you got adequate therapy. And that makes sense, right? Let, let, and let's play that out. Let's think of a five-year-old. Let's take a five-year-old with standard risk acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Right? Survival rate over 95%, a true miracle what many would say before the 1950s and we started using chemotherapy. It's an amazing success in all the efforts the oncology groups have done to make, get us to that point. And we know they're going to have a central line. They're going to have a, a, a stand, the standard chemotherapy routine. And so, but we also know that they could end up in your ER. So let's play this story out. The five-year-old comes into your ER, right? And they're febrile, they're tachycardic, they're hypotensive. And all of us in this room can go, that child is trying to die in front of me as sick as they look. And we've all been there and we've seen that. And so what do we do? Well, we all have that routine, right? We have our sepsis protocols. We're giving them fluids. We're getting the antibiotics. We're getting cultures, right? And what's your, I like to say, what's your I don't want you to die regimen of choice in this scenario? For some people, it's vancomycin. For somebody else, it might be vancomycin and meropenem. Someone might add in an antifungal. Regardless, we are going to be doing a lot of effort. We're going to stabilize that patient. They're going to go to the ICU. And whether you pick vancomycin and cefepime or vancomycin amiropenem, the reality is at that moment, you don't know, we don't know what they have. Right? We don't have any rapid diagnosis that pulls the blood out and says, oh, they have E. coli that's resistant to meropenem. I better give them clistin. We don't have that. Right? So when do we know? What's the best chance, right? So maybe eight hours later, you get the, the blood culture machine goes dinging off. They pull it out. They gram stain it. They call you up and says, well, we have gram negative rod. You're like, oh, I feel great, right? I'm on cefepime or on meropenem. Now they're sick as stink in the ICU and they're, they're on pressors and, you're, and they're watching them. We don't know, right? When do we then know? So let's say you have a rapid diagnostic. Oh, we have Malditoff. Great. We have, it's pseudomonas. Awesome. I'm, great. I'm on meropenem. I'm on cefepime. But still, we don't know if those drugs work, right? We still don't have that susceptibility day. And if you look at the best case scenario, it's probably another 24 hours, right? So now we're 30 hours in and we, and we find out that it's a carbapenem-resistant pseudomonas. That's not out of the question in this day and age, right? And so we've been wrong for 30 hours. So that's why this slide makes sense. And we see it in our own patients. And it also talks about all the other things that story means, right? So our infection prevention techniques matter a lot, right? I'm an ID guy. I can't get up in front of an audience without saying this, right? So we have to be doing those sorts of things. All this quality improvement that we put forward to prevent these infections matters, and it matters when it comes to antibiotic stewardship as well.
So the CDC quantified this number for us um, in 2013. Now this is older, five years old, and said, suggested 23,000 Americans die annually from antibiotic-resistant infection. Another two million are infected annually. Another quarter of a million have what I consider the, an adverse drug event due to antibiotics, which is C. diff, of which 19,000 and other reports would suggest up to 29,000 die uh, of C. diff. And the reality of it is this is likely all underestimates. This is conservative um, thoughts in regards to our impact clinically to antibiotic resistance. And if you look on a global perspective, Sir Jim O'Neill from the UK was commissioned to look at what the economic impact would be. And he, he, he developed this figure that shows what the current rates of death is for different conditions, whether it's road traffic accidents, cancer, which is 8 million, and then antimicrobial resistance, which is just based on these six organisms, and it was only 700,000. And he suggested that if we continue on the rate of antibiotic use and what we're doing without making any changes, by 2050, we'll have 10 million deaths annually due to antimicrobial resistant infections. Right? That will outnumber cancer at that time. And the cost to the world will be $100 trillion which will be a reduction in gross domestic product around 2.8 to 3.5%, which is on the same magnitude of what we saw in the financial collapse of 2008. So a significant impact worldwide, and all of this work really led to the United Nations taking on antimicrobial resistance as a, its fifth ever healthcare topic to go to the General Assembly, and that occurred about a year and a half ago. So while resistance is we talk about, I think what we have to get to our patients and that really impacts them individually is our antibiotic associated adverse events. And as we've seen the increase in the use of Bactrim, we've seen a, ginan, or a large increase in adverse drug events. And in this paper by Jen Goldman, they saw a 20-fold increase in their serious adverse drug reactions at Children's Mercy in Kansas City. And then that rate tripled when we looked at a national data set. If you look at C. diff, while we think of it more in adults, it does impact children. We know exactly those places in the hospital you see more C. diff, um, and usually that's in, I think, hemonc and GI patients. But in the, in the outpatient setting, we've seen a tenfold increase. If you look at the impact of hospital onset C. diff, it's a significant impact on our increased risk of mortality, as well as length of stay and hospital costs. So after that, 35, 40 minutes of my scare tactic, right? Like, here's all the badness. Um, there's things that we can do. And obviously, you all are doing it, and many people are doing it. And this is a, a list of things, and I won't belabor it. But I will tell you, no best lengths of therapy, right? We pick football scores. Um, we pick the lunar calendar, right? It's 7, 10, 14, whatever. Um, we don't really know most of the time. Like, what do we recommend for the duration of therapy for pneumonia? 10 days, right? That's what the guideline says. And they flat out say, look, this is expert opinion based. You probably can use it for a shorter amount of time. We haven't done those studies and we need to do more. And I could go on for hours on antimicrobial use in the agriculture industry, um, but I won't bore you with those details today. So stewardship, um, this is what we all are after, I think, in any use of therapeutics, and that's the optimal selection, dosage, and duration of antimicrobial treatment that results in the best clinical outcome for the treatment or prevention of infection with minimal toxicity to the patient and minimal impact on subsequent resistance. Definitely what we're all after. There are many strategies. I don't think there's just one that's the 
holy grail. I think we have to be working together, and I think that strategy of collaboration probably is as important as any. There's a National Quality Partners Playbook that's been developed, many other resources, and guidelines are definitely a key strategy that I've felt to be a very helpful, community-acquired pneumonia. In the NICU, there's an early onset sepsis calculator that's very helpful in preventing the start of antibiotics in the late preterm babies. There's empiric antibiotic guidelines to help guide people on that initial therapy you might use, whether it's otitis media, orbital cellulitis, or others. There's the, the key strategies like prospective audit with feedback where we review antibiotics after they've been ordered. I know this is a strategy used very much here, as well as prior approval, which we all tend to use as well. And to refer to that initial interaction with Bennett um, was this paper that we did with a resident, um, Ross Newman, where we looked at all of our pneumonia cases admitted to the hospital, just the uncomplicated, so those without empyema. And we looked at the percentage that, got, um, that received ampicillin that was re reflected here in the gray and ceftriaxone here in the black. And you can see as we implemented the stewardship program as well as the guideline, it was not hard for people to switch from using ceftriaxone to ampicillin. Now what you should know is with this guideline, we also recommended only seven days of antibiotics and to get blood cultures on all those admitted. And those didn't change at all. The median days before the guideline was 10 days and the median days after was 10 days. And people still didn't get blood cultures about 50% of the time. So while I was, we were glad that this guideline kind of worked, it wasn't all roses, mind you. I mean, there's other still things that needed work to be done. What we didn't realize was that by switching from ceftriaxone to ampicillin, what would happen on the outpatient world? And that was now people were more likely to feel comfortable to send folks home on amoxicillin, which is here reflected with this black line, seeing that the increase in the percentage discharged on amoxicillin rose to almost 100%. And not using ceftonir, which is an awful drug for streptococcus pneumoniae, and especially pneumonia, um, this was to me a huge win for us. So now there's this, our perspective audit with feedback, which I kind of uh, mentioned, and I think I'd like to just highlight this, this notion of handshake stewardship, which is really brought to light from colleagues in Colorado, Sarah Parker, um, where now instead of just reviewing antibiotics and find the ones we think that are inappropriate and going to talk to those people, there's now this notion that we should just go and talk to everybody and round on a daily basis. And, and really, I think this notion of handshake and that this is a collaboration has to be continued. And I know you all are doing the same thing. And I, we did this, in, we are doing this in St. Louis. And I feel like that interaction and that working together is really what's going to advance the field further. Now, at our own program, the, the original program in Kansas City, over the five years, the first five years, we, we reviewed over 14,000 patients. Our most common recommendation was stop. But I think what's important, what I want to highlight to you all, is that there was disagreement. And I think that's healthy and appropriate. And it's going to drive us and make us better. And in, our, in that program, we had about 22% disagreement. And I think it's, what I was glad about is like, okay, where is that disagreement? And where it was, was with broad-spectrum antibiotics, linazolid. And that was primarily in cystic fibrosis patients using linazolid um, and us kind of having some disagreements on that use, um, and then carbapenems. If you look at indications, you'll notice that one is ear, nose, and throat, which is essentially tracheitis in the ICUs, right? That I, don't, I think ID and ICU docs were kind of like this 
on what's appropriate, when it is a diagnosis, when it's not, what we should be treating. So I think there's a lot of work that can be done there. And then you'll notice that I have pneumonia. And I just described to you this guideline. You're like, oh yeah, why would you have pneumonia, all these disagreements? Well, it's because of viral stuff, right? So you have the RSV or you have the paraflu that comes in and they might have right upper lobe pneumonia red or atelectasis and people are treating that. And I think there's that disagreement. Oh, I think it might be super infected. We're like, I think you can stop. And so I think there's a lot of work to be done even in some of these common conditions. And, and I don't think this has changed. And I know it's no different in St. Louis. And these are the areas that I think with our hospitalists, with our ICU docs, we have to continue to collaborate. So just to give you some data, we did see a significant reduction in our broad spectrum antibiotic use based on this slide. And the Children's Mercy Hospital is reflected in black and another 25 children's hospitals in gray. And we found that there was about an average 18% monthly decline in our antibiotic use. So that was good. Now, the other thing is, well, did the docs and the people that we were impacting really think it was worthwhile? So we did a survey led by our pharmacist, Leslie Stack, and found that people thought we were imparting knowledge on them. We were helping decrease inappropriate use. We were improving the quality of care. Now, I would have thought this is all my buddies just stuffing the box and filling this out for me, but we did have 13% say we were taking away their autonomy. Look, that's reality, right? We're coming to say questioning their prescribing. So I think that's a fair. Now, I don't think we were threatening, but a 1% thought we were threatening. Pretty, pretty nice guy most of the time. So the other piece is like, so what? You know, like I'm always like, well, so what, right? You decrease antibiotic use. Does it matter? Like there's two next questions. Does it impact and maybe you're having adverse harms because you're decreasing antibiotic use, right? That's always brought up. But to me, right, like I believe in this. I got, this, is my, this is my baby. I want this to work well. So I think it's going to make care better. I want to say that these programs will help us improve the care of our children. They'll go home sooner. They'll have less readmissions. So in this study, we try to say, okay, will a stewardship program decrease length of stay and decrease readmissions? We excluded ICU patients. We excluded hemonc patients because they were too complicated. Many of them had more than one review. So we just left it to these groups. And in these groups are medicine patients. CCC means they have a chronic condition. And we divide again medicine and surgery. And we looked at, we'd always followed if a um, clinician had agreed or disagreed with our recommendations. And you can see that when we did the analysis, there is no difference in length of stay. Maybe here that in the chronic conditions for medicine is, but really wasn't significant. I was a little disappointed. Others would say, well, there's no harm there. We then looked at readmissions, um, and in the readmissions, the problem with the study really is that we don't have enough numbers. We did propensity score analysis with the, the trial, trying to create the groups equally, so we lost numbers in doing that process. So I can't tell you what it meant for surgery. One would suggest, well, maybe it's better for medicine, but again, nothing clear cut. I show you these, this study just to say, look, we need more of this. We need more of the papers that say this is either improving on what it's doing for clinical outcomes. We also need those resistance papers. And there's been some that show the decrease in resistance. But to me, resistance is such a long-term impact. And we're still going to use antibiotics, right? And how do you measure a rate of resistance versus to that development? So there is a cost impact. And just to go really quick, essentially, the, the folks in Colorado showed that with their stewardship program, they saved between a million and $2 million over about three years of the program. 
So for administrators, this is a, obviously a big impact and, and something that we're, we're faced with all the time to say, this is why we have to have these programs and what they do for us. So what about outpatient? So I, like I said, I'm a sports fan. So I spent time at Philadelphia. Jeff Gerber is, um, the, the study was done at CHOP, where they basically randomized clinics into receiving education or education plus a report card about how their antibiotic prescribing was for acute respiratory tract infections. And those infections are listed here, sinusitis, strep pharyngitis, and pneumonia. And this is what a report card would look like, right? So you have you, um, and then you'd have the different quarters, and you compare to your practice and then to the network. And this was, again, for broad-spectrum use of acute sinusitis. And what he found after the education and the audit and feedback, and the, those in the audit and feedback saw a significant reduction in their broad-spectrum use. Um, but Jeff's a real smart guy, and he says, well, let's see what happens after they take the grant funding away. Um, and so instead of one jam of paper, he gets two, because he basically showed that once we pulled away that report card, now you went back, that the clinicians went back to their same prescribing. He also had a sociologist, Julie Simzak, who went in and, and interviewed clinicians about this study. Many of them didn't even realize it was going on, and they'd forgot about it. Some actually said that they would change the diagnostic codes so that they could show that they were using antibiotics appropriately. They would knew they probably shouldn't have, but they would diagnose them with something else. So again, this is one of these issues that we're always dealing with when it comes to appropriate use. And there's a lot of pressures. We could talk another hour on just the pressures involved with outpatient antibiotic um, stewardship. Um, there's the nudge principle where a study was done in, the, in California where they put in these posters. And what the posters look like was this is a good friend of ours, Dave Berman, out in, um, uh, out in All Children's in Florida. And basically, this poster would be where people could read it, just saying, hey, if you have an illness, we're going to do our best to prescribe appropriately. And just with a poster, comparatively, there was a 20% reduction. So you just put a poster. What Julie Simzak would tell you, the key was it was the picture of the clinician and their signature. Like, to see that was the key probably to this intervention. So again, the CDC has been really big on this and trying to encourage people to use these poster interventions. Now, my favorite study right now in the outpatient world is this one. So this is this behavioral economic approach where they did 47 clinics. They randomized them to get either none of these, one of them, two of them, or three of them. So some clinics could have gotten three of these behavioral economic techniques. So suggestive alternatives, accountable justification, or peer comparison. Now, everybody got education, and this was all for upper respiratory tract infections, right? So in the adult world, like bronchitis. And so I should say, first off, what suggestive alternatives is, is that you come in, you have a cold, and instead of giving you an antibiotic, it says, hey, we know you're ill. Here's your prescript. Why don't you um, take some Tylenol? Why don't you, um, you do some honey for a cough, right? So I'm going to give you something else to do. I'm just not going to take things away. Accountable justification was if you want to give an antibiotic, you had to justify it in the chart. And if you didn't justify it in the chart, like write down why you used it, it would put in the chart no justification given. So you can imagine that being that, like people were going to be, oh, I might write down or I'm not going to give it. And then lastly, peer comparison. Now their peer comparison is really tough. So what they did is monthly you got an email. And here's what one of the emails would look like. It says, you are a top performer this month. You are in the top 10% of providers. You wrote two prescriptions out of 24 acute respiratory tract infection cases. Right? Feel great. But again, only the top 10% would get this. So you, what did the other 90% get? 
You are not a top performer. Yeah, you are writing too many unnecessary prescriptions. So you can see that this is right there in your face. And what did they find? Well, you can see that if you're a peer comparison, you had a lot of decrease in your use um, and suggestive alternative too. Accountable justification did not. Now, look at the study. Like Things were going down no matter what, right? They're all getting educated. They know this is going on. So they're saying, oh, there, there's something to this. They recently published another paper just recently that showed that the persistence of the effect seems to be present in peer comparison, but it's coming back. And I think these behavioral economic approaches are good. The issue is going to be sustainability, right? Because after a while, you're going to get this email and you're like, yeah, whatever. I'm not a top performer this month. And is that going to matter to me? Right? And because there's not, I don't know the other repercussions. Some places, I can tell you that CHOP, um, there's financial incentive to make sure you're above 90% on your use of narrow-spectrum drugs for acute sinusitis in those conditions. They also, just last week, week and a half ago, published a paper showing that narrow-spectrum antibiotics was just as effective and less toxic, less adverse events than broad-spectrum antibiotics. So that's a newer paper that I need to have in this talk for future, so sorry. So what's the future in the next couple minutes? Well, one is joint commission. We all know this. The elements of practice are there. We have to have these in place. Um, unfortunately, with the change in administration, the CMS condition of participation for acute care facilities is on hold. Um, in talking with folks um, on the Hill and those that know kind of the inner workings that this is likely not going to happen um, anytime in the near future, where people are saying five years more. Um, Missouri, which is where I live, is the second state to have an antimicrobial uh, stewardship mandate. So all of our acute care hospitals have to have a stewardship program, as well as our ambulatory surgical centers. Um, I can tell you that the teeth in that law is weak, um, and I'll, it's probably not going to make it the big impacting change that I think the CDC and others were hoping. A lot, a lot of it due to the politics that occur in Missouri. Um, and this can give you an example. Missouri is the last state to have a prescription drug monitoring program. So if you're wondering why we might not have teeth, that's one of them. Yeah, whole another story. So core elements, I'm not going to belabor the point, but all of us need to be doing these things. And, and this is, again, a flagship of stewardship in the country is really here at Connecticut Children's with Ginger Otto and Bennett and others. I mean, I think this is, you guys are doing these things, but I think we have to keep pushing our efforts forward and working on those collaborations. I think probably the things that worries us the most um, and what this means is what the CDC is now um, imparting upon us. And, and I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek in thinking that I, I worry about this metric, but I do believe we all should be doing this work. And what the CDC wants us to have is our antibiotic use at the NHSN, at the CDC, so that we can compare among our hospitals. It's the same technique that they've used in reducing central line infections, surgical site infections, where we send them our data and then they give us a risk-adjusted observed to expected ratio, right? So if we have 1.5 central line infections, we know that we're 50% more and the thinking is, well, we're risk-adjusted to our peers, we should do something. So they've come up with this metric called the SAR. It's not the czar, it's the SAR. Sometimes I feel like it might be the czar, but it's the SAR. And it's again one of these ratios. And it's been endorsed by National Quality Foundation it's based on our metric days of therapy, which is a quantity-based metric. This is not based upon whether you're using drugs appropriately or not. Okay, so again, 
quantity-based metric that then they're risk adjusting with a facility survey. So it's not patient level data, it's facility level data. And then they risk adjust all the pediatric data they get in. And then they give you a SAR. So if you have a 1.2 on your general medical unit or in your ICU, you know you're 20% more than your peers adjusted by the facility. The problem right now is there's only about five or six facilities. That's increased some. There's a big push. I think we have to get more in and then be able to validate how relevant it is to us as pediatric hospitals, especially our freestanding coordinary care hospitals like Connecticut Children's, St. Louis Children's, and others, because I can tell you I've gotten my SAR, and I saw on our unit that does mainly CF, the SAR was 2.2. And I was like, oh, and I was like, ugh. Right, because that matters. And so my administrator is like, why is that? I'm like, look, this is the problem. And, and this is the area we have to continue to watch. So I tell you that is, that's something that's gonna come down in the future. All right, so collaboration's important. And then this is just a recent paper that suggested we need to work together. And the upshoot is it will reduce death and it'll reduce resistance if we work together with all of our hospitals in our communities. Right, so that way I know what, who's coming with C. diff, I know who might have a resistant infection and I can do the right thing. And so to finish up, this is why I was rushing. Um, so this is why this means so much to me. This is my daughter, Anna. So Anna is six in this picture, right? And you all know what she has, right? She has orbital cellulitis. My wife woke up, screamed. I went and says, ah, crud. And we went to the hospital she got a CT scan, she had an abscess, um, she got admitted. Um, and you know what, I never worried one bit, right? She loves basketball, she, lo she does all things. I didn't worry about her. I knew I was gonna watch her play basketball again. Right, but what if this was 1921? Or what if it's 2050? I mean, this could be way different at that time. And every single one of us in this room has a loved one that this could happen to, and we know that. And so I implore upon all of us that this is why this matters. And all of our work together will make a difference to all of our children, including my daughter, my cousin's daughter, who was in your hospital not three weeks ago, who had a great experience. But those are the people we're doing this for. And with that, I'll end. And I appreciate your time.